for our scripture reading today. Gracious God, help us to listen to your word. By your spirit, tell us what we need to hear. Help us to listen. And show us what we ought to do to faithfully serve Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our first scripture is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, or were at the time of this reading, <laughs> though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostle, uh, apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, sorry, I lost my place. Um, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Now from Job 19, verses 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet my, in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we begin a new sermon series that really is a launching out from what we celebrated last week, which was Easter and the message of Jesus rising from the dead. We're diving into 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go through this whole chapter, I think 58 verses in all. 
want to give you a few snapshots of context of why or what relevance there might be with us diving into this chapter of Scripture. The first is something that I mentioned last week, and that is that this chapter contains the first written testimony of Jesus' resurrection. It predates the written gospel, uh, Mark, which was the first gospel that was written down, by about a decade. And so here, an apostle named Paul includes the resurrection of Jesus at the center of what he calls the gospel. In Greek, euangelion. The good message, or the good announcement. The good news. The word gospel itself is from the Old English word godspell, where God does not stand for God. It stands for good. Spell is news. So in Old English, godspell was the word for good news. And so that's the word we have that translates the Greek, euangelion. That word is related to the two words evangelism and evangelization. The the sharing or the spreading of the good news. Mark's account of Jesus' life is introduced as, quote, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why the first four books of the New Testament, each one an account, a written account, of Jesus' life are called gospels. And traditionally, when we refer to them, we refer to them with capital letters. So those are the capital G gospels. But the small g gospel is actually, in a sense, the most important of all, because that is the the heart message about Jesus. What 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that the gospel, the gospel message, preceded the Gospels, the books of the Bible. Before people started reading Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, the church was already in the process of discerning the meaning and the life impact of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So here's a second snapshot. George Friedrich Handel's famous oratorio, The Messiah which sets the full story of Jesus to classical music. Some of you are well aware, because we have done some teaching on Handel's Messiah before here at North Creek, that while Handel wrote the music, he worked with a partner named Charles Jennings, who wrote the libretto, or rather the lyrics for the songs. And he took those almost verbatim, directly from the King James Version of the Bible. It's in three parts, following the story of Jesus. The first is the coming of the Messiah, the prophecy of Jesus' birth, and the gospel, big G gospel, texts about Jesus' birth. And then part two is about the Lamb of God who is the King of Kings. The Lamb of God speaks of Jesus' sacrificial death so that others would be saved. And so Jesus' passion, his death, his resurrection, those are treated in part two. And that concludes with 
the famous Hallelujah Chorus. But there is a part three. This is shorter than the first two parts. And it is written to capture the impact of Christ's resurrection. Part three is the so what to Easter. Like, isn't it great? We're celebrating that Jesus has risen from the dead. Why is that important? What difference does it make in our lives and in the life of the world? And coming up on uh, uh, the, coming, the uh, forthcoming Sundays, 9 o'clock in the Fireside Room, we'll be exploring part three of Handel's masterpiece. But during worship this spring, our North Creek Choir and select soloists will perform some of these selections from part three. A third snapshot. When I was in seminary many, many years ago, a church I served as a student intern uh, presented me with some pastoral gifts at the end of my year with them. And one of the gifts that they gave me was a brand new Book of Common Worship Pastor's Edition. This would be the, the, the worship book that pastors hold. It's nice and compact. It's a little smaller than this Bible that we would use if we were standing in front of a congregation uh, officiating a wedding or performing a baptism or officiating a memorial service. The pastor who I was working with at the time said that I would need it, and she was right. I have used it throughout my ministry. One thing that I've noticed from the very beginning concerning memorial services is that it includes a, a section of scriptures in their entirety, scripture passages that are meaningful and theologically connected to the message that needs to be preached at a memorial service when someone dies. Reminders of God's grace and, and mercy and comfort in times of grief and loss, but also the hope of life beyond this life brought to us through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 figures prominently in that list. And yet, I and other pastors have been reticent to select that text that is listed because it often is listed in its entirety. It's almost the entire chapter because the argument and the theology in 1 Corinthians 15 is so dense and different parts are tied to other parts that it's hard to just say, let's just read four verses or eight verses of this entire chapter. And so we tend to gravitate to other selections that are there that are just as true and just as meaningful. But throughout my ministry, I've often thumbed through that and said, you know what? Someday... Someday, I'm going to preach a sermon series where we dive into that rich depth of 1 Corinthians 15. And someday is now. We're going to start off with a discussion. It's a, I'm going to ask you to turn to, to two or three people nearby. Make sure that you connect with someone nearby to answer this question. What's one thing that someone has passed down or passed on to you? Turn to your neighbor and share your response to that. No pressure. You can always pass. 
What has someone passed down to you or passed on to you? One thing, share with a neighbor. All right, well, I'm sure we could go on, and maybe, maybe these conversations can be continued after the service as we're gathered around some coffee in the, in the hallway. Uh, just curious, uh, would anyone be willing to just shout out what they shared in their group? Anyone? Yes. Faith. So, yeah, thinking about the faith being passed down to you or passed on to you by parents or other mentors. Yes. Temper. Okay. All right. All right. Oh, boy. Wow. One group's getting really honest over there. Uh, that's going to come in real handy in this, in this uh, sermon series. Uh, yes. Wow. She anchored her life to Christ in that moment, and that explained a lot of the stability that you saw in her. Um, oh, wonderful. Uh, anyone else? Any, any person who brought up just a, a normal, like a, a possession of some kind? Yes. It, it keeps that, that memory alive, doesn't it? You know, associated with those things that, that, that are handed down to us. And so, <clears throat> and so we are, uh, we've shared a number of things. We've shared about, about our experience of, of, of faith being passed down to us. And, and also various characteristics uh, being passed down to us and tendencies. Uh, and also some, some uh, treasured treasured items that, that are meaningful more than just the item itself, but it's that it's attached to a person and a remembrance. Um, so one image that goes along with this is, uh, I was reminded when I was watching some of our, our uh, high schoolers uh, compete in a track and field meet uh, over Zoom, they weren't running on Zoom, the, the, the camera was broadcasting their running on Zoom. And it was quite a thrill to see someone, uh, it was done kind of really nice, like a real sports uh, broadcast, kind of the, the camera work, and, and so it was a real thrill to watch. I'm sure it was a real thrill for them to compete. But it reminded me that just that whole idea of passing the baton from one runner to the next, to the next. And you can think of that happening uh, generationally, with, with, with faith, with, with the characteristics we inherit, but also treasured heirlooms uh, that, are, that, are, that are shared and, and passed on from one generation to the next. It, it makes it contemporary. It brings something that was far away in the past into our present. And that's where we are coming into our consideration of 1 Corinthians 15, the importance of a living redeemer. 
At the outset of 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul summarizes the important facts about Jesus' death and resurrection. In verse 3, he writes, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. So Paul had received this. Paul was not there at the cross. But he had received this. This was passed down to him or on to him. And then he is passing it on to others And that, my friends, is how the gospel truths were before the gospel truths were written down. But even when they were written down, there's still the passing on of a a respect for God's word. The value of studying God's word and of knowing Jesus. But Paul says he passes it on to them as of first importance. As of first importance. And then he lists the various aspects. He gets very specific here. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. And this is how Christ is a redeemer. Christ's death was redemptive. It was for our sins. And so he is our redeemer. Verse 4, he was buried... And then raised on the third day. Again, according to the scriptures. Jesus is not only our redeemer as if he died and and he accomplished something. But that was the end of the story. But no, he was buried and then raised. He is a living redeemer. And then in verses 5 through 7. Paul basically adds a series of layers to our basically our pedestal or our foundation of faith to build upon. And these are the appearances that Jesus made. First he says he appeared, people saw him in bodily form, he appeared to Cephas. Now to some of us we might not recognize that name, but if you were reading through the whole Bible, you would recognize that in some of the written gospels that the figure of Peter is referred to as Cephas. Yes, it was one of the names that Peter was known as. And that's the name, that's how Paul knew Peter. And even in some of his writings, when he actually has a beef with Peter, he uses the name Cephas to refer to him. Then he speaks of Jesus appearing to the 12. Now, this wasn't the each down to the last 12 of the original disciples. This is that group. The tw- they were known as the 12. Because as you uh, who know your story well know that Judas did not have the, the blessing or the privilege of seeing Jesus rise from the dead. Um, but then he goes on to say this. The brothers and sisters, more than 500 of them, at, Jesus appeared to them at the same time. And rather than get lost in that phrase, I want you to remember that, because next week and the week after, we're going to come back to that. But right now, ponder, how in the world is that possible? Some of those people were still living when Paul wrote this. Others have fallen asleep, which is exactly what you think it means. It's, it's a euphemism that was very common in that day, as it really is in ours as well, uh, of people who have died or passed away. And then finally, James, who would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then all of the apostles. And then finally, the very last one is Paul's personal testimony. 
an unlikely person because he came to the party late. He was a persecutor of the church. But remember what he's referring to here, we can read the story of in Acts chapter 9. His encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. So this, these are, this is the, the, the pedestal that has various layers. That each one, as Paul lists it, it's more and more secure. Jesus' resurrection was witnessed, not by just one, or two, or even just 12. And remember, this testimony predates the written Gospels. And that leads us to some tense moments, past and present. And yes, I'm offering this as a play on words. Tense. This past Friday, when I was with our students in the back parking lot before they went to their retreat, the conversation shifted to the various foreign languages that they were studying or about to study uh, in uh, high school. And it was quite impressive. One uh, young woman introduced herself in French with, with Parisian fluency. And I can just picture her right there uh, uh, near the Seine with a baguette in hand. Uh, just, she's ready, she's just ready to make that trip. No pressure on her parents to get her there. Um, and, then, and then I was really impressed by two students, one of whom introduced herself to the other in Russian, and the other person introduced herself in reply in Chinese. Um, so, so we've got some, some very impressive students among us. But one of the challenges, as many of you know, with learning a foreign language is to master verb tenses. I mean, when I'm throwing, I studied Spanish, and, and when I'm, I don't have any other option of speaking English. <laughs> when I'm like in the middle of a Spanish-speaking country, I can do quite well, but it's all in one tense. It's all present. If, if I'm talking about dinner two nights ago, I'm still eating, right? <laughs> you know, that, that's, I'm a one-tenth Spanish speaker, and that's it, because uh, I, I studied that, but it's just got too out of control uh, for me. Uh, but yeah, the most basic of these tenses are past tense, present tense, and future tense. And in 1 Corinthians 15, tense matters. To understand what Paul is saying, we need to recognize what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, and how these are interrelated. And in today's text of the first 11 verses, Paul is saying something primarily about the past and the present. And this sets up the stage for the conversations to come as we move through the chapter that focus primarily on the future. So the past, what has happened? Well, the events of the gospel that I just mentioned have happened, and they were witnessed. So that's, that's happened. The gospel message has been preached Paul gives that testimony. He has preached that gospel message and has passed it on to them. And, and this is a really important one, the gospel message has been received by and believed in, both of those words are used kind of as bookends, one early in the text, one at the very end, verse 11. Uh, they've the people Paul is writing to and talking to have received it and believed it. So, as we move forward... The, the issue that we're going to be talking about is not that people aren't receiving and believing the message of the gospel. It's something else. But what is happening, uh, what's happened, the other thing that's happened is the Corinthians have stood upon the gospel. They've anchored their lives to it. Paul refers to the gospel on which you have taken your stand. 
And then Paul talks about the impact of the gospel that he has received in that he's received the grace of God. And this is where Paul famously says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, if you take that out of context, it might sound like just a defiant uh, uh, statement that Paul says. Like, God, you don't have anything on me. I am what I am. You know, I live it my way, and that's it. That's not actually anything close to what it truly means. What it means is, Paul's talking about his apostleship. And he, he knows he doesn't deserve to be an apostle, to be one who shares this message, because he spent a good number of years persecuting the church. He is a redeemed sinner. By the grace of God, I am an apostle who is a redeemed sinner, is what he's saying. And so we identify with that phrase when we say, you know, I don't deserve to be called to a particular ministry or to to work in a particular part of the church. But I am a redeemed sinner by God's grace. It's by God's grace and call. That's who I am. And then finally it shifts to what is happening. In verse 2, Paul writes this, By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So what is happening now is they are being saved if they hold firmly to the word. And to embrace firmly in Greek here is katekete, which is related to the word catechesis or catechism. So all of that talk in the church of a catechism of training in the basics of the gospel and understanding. We do that so that we will be holding firm to the faith. And we mentioned this earlier, and so I won't spend a lot of time in it, but you'll have a slide up where you you see the uh, statue of uh, Christ at El Picacho, which is on a hill overlooking the city of Tegucigalpa in Honduras. These are photos that I took as part of our mission trip there a few years ago, just before covid and uh, I'm highlighting here that, that like most statues, uh, those statues are placed on a pedestal, something firm. And, and this was the, the way life was in, in the classical Hellenized world. You would often see human figures that were there, but they weren't just haphazardly applied. They were all anchored to a place in which they stand securely. And so it's one of those present-to-mind illustrations of anchoring oneself to the teachings of the church, the gospel, standing firm. One of the most popular like, statues that we have as Americans, right, is the Statue of Liberty. And were you aware that the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty is taller than the statue? 154 feet to 151. Google it. Okay, all right, well, we're going to transition now, just start to conclude and set ourselves up for what we're going to talk about next week. And we're talking about a foreshadowed future. So Paul has brought up what's happened in the past, these gospel truths, and what's happening in the present, uh, anchoring to those, uh, firmly being held in those truths through faith. But what about the future? Well, it turns out, What we're going to encounter is, is a, a danger that the people of Corinth are, are, in a sense, running into in relation to their thinking of how the, gospel, the past gospel and their present understanding of it and, and, and connection to it 
how that is interrelated with how they look at the future. And something that helps us understand the future dimension of the gospel are these words from Job. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin or my body has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Now in the context of Job, this is a really deep. If you think 1 Corinthians 15 is deep, try Job. Um, These words are a heavy-duty study if you want to study them in the context within the book of Job. However, through the history of the Christian church, these have words have rung true for Christians as they've run across them in reading scripture and said, hey, this is talking about Jesus rising from the dead and what it means for my life. In the Protestant Reformation in England, the author of the Book of Common Prayer put a verse from Job 19 and a verse from 1 Corinthians 15 together in the opening of the burial service in that worship book. And Charles Jennings, the librettist for Handel's Messiah, went to that particular burial service opening that includes Job 19, these words, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and then a verse from 1 Corinthians 15. And that's how that connection gets made in Handel's Messiah. But Job foreshadows two future aspects of the impact of the gospel in the lives of the believer. In the present, we know that our Redeemer lives. But in the future, my Redeemer, number one, will stand on the earth. And then number two, in my flesh I will see God, though my skin or flesh is destroyed. How is that going to happen? Stay tuned. We're going to use binoculars on this journey. You know, when we're on a journey, we use binoculars so that we can see close up what is far away. And on a, on a journey, like a hike, when we use binoculars about what's ahead, we use it geographically. But what if we had binoculars that operated temporally in terms of time? That we could look at the future and see the future that seems so far away up close. The Apostle Paul is lending us his binoculars in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we are going to go on that journey as we move from here. But standing firm on the gospel, the important message about the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we anchor to that. And we begin our journey into its future dimension. We will discover that the grace of God will not be without effect as we discover the triumph of life in the rising of Jesus Christ. My Redeemer lives victorious. Amen.